Thanks for listening to the Faith Assembly of God podcast. Please join us at 9, 11 a.m. at the main campus. At 11 a.m. at the Monk's Corner, Remount, and North Charleston campuses. Thank you for listening. We hope that God blesses you through doing so. Welcome this morning to Faith Assembly of God. So good to have you guys here today. What a great day. Wasn't there a sweet spirit in the house this morning? I don't know if you've, I just felt the presence of the Lord this morning. Always when we come together, come into the house of the Lord and experience his goodness and his presence and his many blessings. Now we're right in the middle, we're right at the end of the story. We're in week number 30. How many just by, uh, have been following along and reading your chapter every week and you're following right along? Some of us, you came in late partway through and you, uh, you don't have to go back and catch it from the beginning, but you've been following along and studying the story as we're learning together from God's word. And we saw how the church exploded just a couple of weeks ago on that day of Pentecost and, and, and really thrust out through persecution. And you saw a little clip of Stephen, the first martyr, the deacon who was stoned to death and Paul watching what was taking place. And now Paul himself becomes this incredible ambassador for the church. And he he becomes an ambassador to the Gentiles. And he's going to take the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire. So this morning I want to focus on that. And I want to look at how we need to finish our race. So take your Bibles out and turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Paul had a brilliant theological mind. He was a scholar. He had evangelistic zeal. He had a pastor's heart. And uh, everywhere he went, he, he, most of his writings, uh, he is the largest writer in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. He took three different missionary journeys. And on the second missionary journey, he established a church at Ephesus. So let's stand together and take a look at, at uh, Acts chapter 20. And we'll read verse number 17. Now, here's the scene. They're now on their third missionary journey. And uh, he's heading back to Jerusalem. He has been traveling throughout all the churches and revisiting them. And he is collecting offerings for the church in Jerusalem that has been going through a terrible famine. And so he has the money. He has the offerings. He's gathered together from all the churches. And he heads back. He's in a hurry to get back. And so he purposely bypasses the city of Ephesus. So he won't get tied up there, but he goes down just a few miles south of that and he stops at Miletus. And there at Miletus, he calls for the Ephesian elders to come down and visit him there. Because in Paul's mind, he had been warned several times that danger awaits you in Jerusalem. He had been told, don't go back to Jerusalem. They're going to put you in chains and you may not get out of there. And so danger awaits him. And so in his mind, this is possibly the last time he's going to see these Ephesian elders. Now, let's look at what he has to say to them. Verse number 17. And we're going to stay right here throughout the rest of this morning, right here in chapter 20 together. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Although I was severely tested by the plot of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared both to the Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for your word this morning. 
Lord, I thank you for this race you've called us to follow and be a part of. And I just pray, God, that you will help us to run the race and and not give up and not get discouraged and not fall away along the wayside, God, but keep our heart and mind and eyes fixed on you. And I, I pray, God, your word will find fertile ground this morning. So speak to our hearts, our lives. We ask it in your mighty name. Amen. Turn to someone and say, finish strong, and then you may be seated. Paul has this sense of urgency. He says, get the elders from Ephesus. Bring them down here. I want to meet with these guys. Now, let me go back and just give you a little highlight of how this church exploded and how it all began. He goes to Ephesus, and and God sends incredible revival. And when he gets there, he prays. And there are 12 men, the Bible says in Ephesus, that are baptized in the Holy Spirit. I believe these became the leaders of the early house churches all throughout the city of Ephesus, the pastors that would lead these churches. He ministered there for two years. The Bible tells us he stayed there, taught, preached for two years. So he's got a love for these people. He has been among them. He has labored among them. There were incredible miracles being done at the hand of the Apostle Paul. The Bible says they even brought their handkerchiefs to him. They would touch his apron, and as many as did that were healed. And so God's power of healing is being released in the city of Ephesus. Uh, He cast out an angry demon. Remember uh, the the, the Sceva boys? There were seven, uh, there, there were, uh, they, they thought they could cast out the demons, seven boys, out of this man who was demon-possessed. Sceva was the high priest in the area at this time. And the Bible says uh, that the demons came out and beat those seven guys up. They said, uh, Jesus I know, when Paul encounters the demons, the demonic spirits, they said, Jesus I know, and uh, Paul I know, but who are you? He said that to the Sceva boys, and then proceeded to pounce on them and work them over. So Paul comes along, and he cast out the demons out of that demon-possessed man. Uh, they, they, all their sorcery scrolls were, were gathered together. They were burned in the middle of the city. They had a big bonfire, burned up all their stuff. They were, that God was moving so powerfully in the city of Ephesus, he was putting the idol makers out of business. And the silversmiths got so angry and so mad, they incited a riot. And so all this happens in the city of Ephesus. Broken people coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, transformed criminals, liberated cult leaders, Roman officials uh, who are becoming new believers uh, of this early church uh, in Ephesus. What an incredible, powerful, exploding church. It's interesting that John would write many years later, and he would write to the Ephesians and say, I have this against you who have left your first love. And one of the things the apostle Paul wants to do before he leaves is to warn them about danger that's up ahead. And he has this real sense of urgency. He knows he may never, ever see them again. And, 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 and so he, he reaches them and says, come down and meet me here at Miletus. Now, I believe today we could be living in these last days. How many believe it, Lord, could be coming very soon? You look around, you see the mess, you see the junk going on. I want to tell you, there ought to be a sense of urgency in every single one of us to do all we can to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people today who are dropping out of the race. There are so many that fall into temptation every day. Uh, There are leaders who are leaving the ministry. Uh, There are those who are going through major discouragement and setbacks and hurt and pain. Uh, And the last days, the Bible said, it would be characterized by much deception. 
And just like there are false prophets in the Apostle Paul's days, I want to tell you they abound today. There are false cults, false teaching, false prophets all around. Uh, And so there ought to be within every single one of us this sense of urgency to do all we can to tell them and warn them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul addresses these pastors. These are the pastors of the house churches throughout the city of Ephesus. And, uh, and, and so he's got this message for them. And I believe the message that he has for them, for these leaders, is good for every single one of us today. And so this is what we're going to look at today. And Paul starts out in this leadership training. He says, you know how I lived my whole life while I was among you. What an incredible statement for a man to make. You know how I live my life among you. I wonder if we can say that to our families. You know how I've lived among you. I wonder if we can say that to our co-workers, to our neighbors, to our friends, to, to those who are watching us. Can we say, like the Apostle Paul, you know how I lived my life among you? Great testimony. And how did he live his life? What was that example for us to follow? I want to give you three things that I believe will keep us on track this morning. Number one, he was devoted to a great person. Jesus Christ has got to be at the center of our lives. Everything we do has got to revolve around him as the Lord at the center. He was devoted to a great person. You see, the Apostle Paul sees himself as an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you know, from the very first day how I lived among you. Uh, He didn't come in like a politician trying to please man trying to please all the voters, trying to appeal to every group of people who were out there. But he comes as an ambassador, as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a difference between a politician and an ambassador. And so he comes representing his king. And he says, you know, from the very first day I came to you at Ephesus, how I lived my entire life among you. And I preached the whole will of God in verse number 27. Lived a consistent life. The life matched up with the message. And he wasn't one thing on one when no one was looking and then saying something else. But his life paralleled his message. He would not do anything that would embarrass his king. Verse 19, he says, I serve the Lord with great humility. He wasn't seeking his own glory. He wasn't looking for the praise of man. He wasn't some religious celebrity that came into Ephesus. But he wasn't trying to draw attention to himself, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. I came as an ambassador for the king. I came to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in every single thing I did. He was not afraid to love the people. The Bible says he was transparent. He says, you know how I wept and I cried when I was among you, when I was with you. I didn't hide my emotions. I didn't hide who I was. He's a transparent leader and he loved those people. Now listen, when you're involved in leadership, it doesn't mean you're better than everybody else. It doesn't mean you lord it over everybody else. It doesn't mean you're the top dog and everybody is out there to serve you. Uh, in leadership in God's kingdom, he says, if you want to be great, you've got to learn to be the servant of all. And if God entrusts leadership into your portfolio, into your assignment on the earth, it just simply means there are more people for you to serve. 
more people for you to reach out to, more feet to wash, more people to love, more people to minister to. You never get too good, too above everybody else that you can't minister and serve them where they're at. Paul says that I lived humbly among you. I I cried when I was with you. I I served you. I I never ceased to warn you. I, I was there with you every step of the way. He wasn't better than them. He became a servant of them. Jesus Christ said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a a ransom for many. And so we're servants first and foremost. We're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and we serve his people with love and compassion and tenderness. I've got to ask you today, what kind of example are you? Can you say that? Can you say I've been an example among you? The second thing that we see about the Apostle Paul is he's, he's motivated by a great purpose. Look, if you would, at verse 22, and you begin to see this mission he was called to. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So he had been warned many times along the way that When he gets to Jerusalem, hardships are going to come. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race. Everybody say, finish the race. Finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying of the gospel of Christ's grace. What motivates you? What drives you? What what moves you in your life? The Apostle Paul says, I am motivated to finish the task to testify of God's incredible grace. Paul wasn't motivated by money. Look, if you would, at verse 33, jumping ahead. He says, now I, I, uh, it says, I do, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Uh, wasn't moved and motivated by money. What, what drives you? What, what motivates you? Are you driven by money? By more, more stuff, more things, more success. What moves you? He, he, he wasn't motivated by the, 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 the thought of an easy life or retirement. Look at verse number 34. He says there, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions in everything I did. Uh, everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, We must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so he says, I'm all about helping others. I worked with my own hand. Uh, I wasn't motivated by an easy, soft life. Uh, He says, I know that chains and, and tribulations await me. But he said, that does not move me. That will not stop me. Paul is motivated by the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 24, to finish the race. To complete the task that God had given him. Now he gives several analogies that describe his motivation. And and the first analogy he gives in the word of God is that of a runner. He says, I must finish the race. How many know the Christian race is not a sprint? It's not a 40-yard dash. Some of you can make it about 40 yards or you're passing out. Paul remains faithful to the end. Uh, the race is not a sprint. It is a marathon. I, uh, 
I, I, I had a moment of insanity about four years ago in April when I thought uh, we kind of took a dare among some of the neighbors and my son, and we were going to run in the Cooper River Bridge run. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to try that. And so I've never done it. It's kind of on that bucket list thing because it's so big in Charleston. It's kind of like everybody's got to do it once. I've been asked several times since that time if I'm going to run in the race. And my answer is no. Very quickly, very rapidly, just no thought. I've, I've done it, been there, done that once. That's all I need to do. I about died that day. And, and uh, it's a 6.2-mile uh, 10K race. And uh, you go up this, this bridge that goes over the Cooper River. And they say it's a 6-degree incline. It felt like about a 20-degree incline. And I thought we would never get to the top. But I, I went through this mental exercise when I was running, and, and I, I just said something simply like this. Okay, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. And my goal was not to stop running. My goal was to always keep those feet moving. It wasn't very much of a run. It was more like a very slow jog. But, but my goal was to just keep one foot in front of the other. And I think sometimes in the Christian life, when we're running the race that Christ has called us to, we don't always know what's ahead. And sometimes there's dips and hills and sometimes there's challenges along the way. Uh, but if following Jesus Christ, I just put one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. Uh, don't stop. Don't quit. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Just keep one foot in front of the other until we finish the race. That God has given up. Never, ever give up. And even though there's some hills and valleys, I want to tell you, it's worth the journey because of the prize that God has in front of us. Don't stop. Keep running. And then he uses the analogy of a steward. Now look what he says in the 24th verse. He says, I want to complete the task that God has given me. His life is from the Lord. His calling is from God. His service is from the Lord. Everything that he has, he sees as a gift from God. I want to finish this task that God has given unto me. You see, a steward is not the owner. A steward simply manages and takes care of the owner's stuff. And as children of God, we got to see ourselves uh, not as owners of our life, not as owners of our possessions, not of owners of our family and our house and our stuff, but we got to see ourselves according to God's viewpoint. We are simply stewards to take care of all God's gifts. It'll change the way you handle your finances. It'll change the way you take care of your life. It'll change the way you serve and minister to others. It'll change the way you manage your time. Because you begin to understand everything I have as a child of God is not mine. It's all God's. He said, I run the race and I'm going to finish the task that God gave me. This is a gift from the Lord. Uh, this is a privilege uh, that God has entrusted into my care. Uh, and so I live my life like a steward of all of God's stuff. 1 Corinthians 4 and 2, he says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Listen, what, everything you have today, has, does it come from God? Yes or no? Yes or no? That's why Paul would say, in everything, 
glorify the Lord. Uh, in everything, glorify the Lord. In all of your actions, in all of your speech, in all of your deeds, in the, in the way you handle your time, your money, your talents, in everything. He says, I do all to the glory of God. I'm simply a steward of God's stuff. And then he sees himself as a witness. Look at verse 24 again. He says there, to complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to God's grace. You know, as you study the journeys of the Apostle Paul and you read through the books of Acts, everywhere Paul goes, he tells his story. He tells about his conversion story. You saw a little glimpse of it, and that was from the Bible, just recently shown on the History Channel. He tells his conversion story, how that that the the Lord blinded him. He was blinded for three days, and how he went to Ananias' house. And he tells the story of God's incredible grace. Everywhere he went, and in everything he does, he tells his story, his grace story, his testimony. He tells the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere he goes. Now, let me tell you something. If you know Jesus Christ, you've got a testimony. You've got a story to tell. God's changed us, transformed us, cleansed us by his blood, given us his grace. He says, I am a witness. A witness simply tells what he has seen and what he has heard. And so we are witnesses because we have seen God work in our life. We've heard him speak to us. We've heard his call and answered that call. And so I ask you again, what has God done for you? You've got a testimony. I want to tell you, in the month of May, well, I'm doing a series, and it's coming up in a couple of weeks, and it's going to be simply entitled Our, our Missions Theme, Connecting to Christ, Experiencing Life. I'm going to tell you four remarkable stories from the book of John, four incredible stories of testimonies of lives that were changed and transformed because they came in contact with Jesus Christ. But we're also going to be telling some of our own stories around this church, and so I don't want you to miss it. It's going to be exciting testimonies. We're witnesses of what Christ has done. And the fourth thing he says, the fourth analogy he uses right here, and this is verses 26 and 27, he uses the analogy of a watchman of a watchman. You say, well, where do you see that? Look at 26. Therefore, I declare to you today, I am innocent of the blood of all men. That's a very unusual phrase. I am innocent of the blood of all men. What is he talking about? For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now, to understand this thought of being innocent of the blood of all men, you've got to turn back to Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 3. And this is where I get the word watchman from. uses the very same thought here that, that, that Ezekiel the prophet saw. Son of man, I have made you a watchman. Ezekiel 3 and 17. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin. And But look at these words. But I will hold you accountable for his blood. Wow. If someone's living in wickedness and we don't warn them, their blood's on our hands. But if you do warn the wicked man, he does not turn from his wicked wickedness or from his evil ways. He will die for his sins, his own sins, but you will have saved yourself. We're not responsible for the results. We're responsible for warning them. Verse 20. 
Again, when a righteous man, now he flips the coin here. He thought first time about the wicked, now the righteous, turns from his righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before him, he will die. Since you did not warn him, he will die for his sin. The righteous things he did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. Now, if you see a brother slipping away, turning away, and you don't warn him, says you're accountable for his blood but if you do warn the righteous man not to sin and he does not sin he will surely live because he took warning and you will have saved yourself now ezekiel's writing to israel when they are in exile they are in bondage they are in exile and ezekiel has this serious calling from god as a watchman and he wants to warn the nation of israel against turning away from god even though they're in exile even though they're in bondage he says i have put you ezekiel as a watchman for the nation you need to warn the nation of israel of impending danger Now, Paul was also faithful to warn the people. He warned the wicked. He warned the sinners. Uh, He told them about the judgment of God, and he showed them how they could be saved by God's incredible grace. Uh, But also, you will also see he warned the saints. He warned the righteous uh, because he says, even now, wolves are going to come in from among you uh, to see if it were the very elect. And so what he's doing is warning them of all the wolves among them and around them. And he says in verse 27, I never cease to preach the whole will of God. Now, some people like to preach one side of it. They like to talk about heaven and grace and God's goodness and mercy. Yes, he is good. He is loving. He is. But they never talk about the holiness of God. God is also holy. So he says, warn the righteous of judgment to come. There must be a balance between both the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. We love to talk about heaven. We love to feel good. We love to think everybody's going to get there. Paul says, I never stop preaching the whole will of God. I never stop warning you. There's got to be a balance. The Lord is coming back. We have to make a decision. And the decision I make now will affect where I spend eternity. And so we've got to warn them as watchmen on the walls. Uh, The church cannot fall asleep on duty. Uh, America is in grave danger. We must speak up. Uh, We are losing our religious freedoms. Uh, The family is under attack. Uh, Life has been cheapened today. uh, And millions are lost and heading for judgment unless we warn them. Paul says, I'm a watchman. I'm a watchman. I am like Ezekiel. Warning people. You've got to warn them. And that leads me into my third point is simply this. Be warned of great peril to come. And look at verse 28 as we begin to see this warning. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, bought with his own blood. Now he shifts the analogy of runners and racers and stewards. And now he talks about shepherd and sheep. 
And this is where he's really going to hone in on these Ephesian elders, or they're also called pastors. They were called shepherds. Uh, and and, and he, what he's saying is sheep are defensive animals. They, they don't can't, they wander off. They put their nose to the ground. They don't know where they're at. They'll overgraze themselves, and, and they're very subject to prey from wolves. And so he says, you shepherds, guard the sheep. Protect your sheep. And he warns of three dangers. First of all, he warns them of dangers around us. Look at verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Dangers around us. Savage wolves. I, uh, many years ago, my, when the church was small, we've probably been here about four years because we were in uh, the building here on on the interstate, our first building over there. And my wife was directing the children's play. At that time, you know, she, she did about everything. And so she's directing the children's play. And uh, we're getting ready to do this great big Christmas play. And uh, it's about shepherd and sheep and at the hillside. And it's the angel coming. It's all the great scene. Well, Friday night before the play, the shepherd gets sick. He gets chicken pox. Now, he's got, the, he's got the leading role. He's the main guy in the play. He's the, he's the, the head of the whole thing. And so, uh, more lines than anybody else. Well, that late, there's nobody else to do it. Well, you know, there's a saying in Hollywood, the show must go on. And so, my wife got me to be the shepherd. And I had like one day to learn my lines. And I, I, I can't learn my lines. And, and, so, uh, and so, I got all these cue cards. And I've got them in my hand. And I'm shuffling through cue cards. And, and I, I think I have one rehearsal right at the very last day, the dress rehearsal, to get ready for this big play. And, and all the kids are up there. And so you, you, you can see the scene. I've got these cards hidden. I've got my, my outfit on. And all the, all the little sheep come out. And they're all about this high. And then the shepherd comes out. He's huge. And, and that was me. And I remember in the play that there's this scene where the spotlight's going to come on. And it's going it's to land on the shepherd. It's going to be my big line, one of my big scenes. And it's going to flash on me. And after that, the angel, the light's going to go on the angel. And the angel's going to be right there. Well, somehow, uh, I got my cue cards out of order. And, I, and all these little sheep are around me. And I'm there. I got my staff. And I say... Listen, I think I hear a wolf. Then the light shined on the angel. And all the little sheep are going, they're, they're saying, that, that's not a wolf. That's not a wolf. That, that's an angel. That, that's not the wolf. And I got my cards mixed up and I just blew the whole thing. My big moment to be the star and I blew it. But I want to tell you, in real life, sometimes it's hard to tell the angels from the wolves. Now, the Bible it says even that, that in the last days, the angel, the, Satan will even come like an angel of light. And sometimes in the church, sometimes in the body of Christ, we can't tell the difference between who are the wolves uh, and who are the angels. False teachers were coming into Ephesus. They were threatening the early church. And so this is why Paul feels this sense of urgency. Don't you know that, that wolves are going to come in among you? They're going to try to destroy you, destroy the flock. They're going to come against you. They are imposters that were more concerned about building their own personal pocketbooks 
than building up the body of Christ. Beware of false teachers. Listen, we've got them all around today. False teachers, they're, they're around. They're, they're wolves all around us. Let me just throw a few things out there very quickly about false teachers. One, warned of great peril to come. And look at verse 28 as we begin to see this warning. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, bought with his own blood. Now he shifts the analogy of runners and racers and stewards. And now he talks about shepherd and sheep. And this is where he's really going to hone in on these Ephesian elders, or they're also called pastors. They were called shepherds. Uh, and and, and he, what he's saying is sheep are defenseless animals. They, they don't can't, they wander off. They put their nose to the ground. They don't know where they're at. They'll overgraze themselves, and, and they're very subject to prey from wolves. And so he says, you shepherds, guard the sheep. Protect your sheep. And he warns of three dangers. First of all, he warns them of dangers around us. Look at verse 29. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Dangers around us. Savage wolves. I, uh, many years ago, my, when the church was small, I, we've probably been here about four years because we were in uh, the building here on on the interstate, our first building over there. And my wife was directing the children's play. At that time, you know, she, she did about everything. And so she's directing the children's play. And uh, we're getting ready to do this great big Christmas play. And uh, it's about shepherd and sheep and at the hillside and it's the angel coming. And it's all the great scene. Well, Friday night before the play, the shepherd gets sick. He gets chicken pox. Now, he's got, the, he's got the leading role. He's the main guy in the play. He's the, he's the, the head of the whole thing. And so, uh, more lines than anybody else. Well, that late, there's nobody else to do it. Well, you know, there's a saying in Hollywood, the show must go on. And so, my wife got me to be the shepherd. And I had like one day to learn my lines. And I, I, I can't learn my lines. And, and so... Uh, and so I've got all these cue cards, and I've got them in my hand, and I'm shuffling through cue cards, and, and I, I think I have one rehearsal right at the very last day, the dress rehearsal, to get ready for this big play, and, and all the kids are up there. And so you, you, you can see the scene. I've got these cards hidden. I've got my, my outfit on. And all the, all the little sheep come out, and they're all about this high, and then the shepherd comes out. He's huge, and, and that was me. And I remember in the play that there's this scene where the spotlight's going to come on. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to land on the shepherd. It's going to be my big line, one of my big scenes. And it's going to flash on me. And after that, the angel, the light's going to go on the angel. And the angel's going to be right there. Well, somehow, uh, I got my cue cards out of order. And, I, and all these little sheep are around me. And I'm there. I got my staff. And I say... Listen, I think I hear a wolf. Then the light shined on the angel. And all the little sheep are going, they're, they're saying, that, that's not a wolf. That's not a wolf. That, that's an angel. That, that's not the wolf. And I got my cards mixed up and I just blew the whole thing. My big moment to be the star and I blew it. But I want to tell you, in real life, sometimes it's hard to tell the angels from the wolves. 
Now the Bible says even that, that in the last days, the angel, the Satan will even come like an angel of light. And sometimes in the church, sometimes in the body of Christ, we can't tell the difference between who are the wolves uh, and who are the angels. False teachers were coming into Ephesus. They were threatening the early church. And so this is why Paul feels this sense of urgency. Don't you know that that wolves are going to come in among you? They're going to try to destroy you, destroy the flock. They're going to come against you. They are imposters that were more concerned about building their own personal pocketbooks than building up the body of Christ. Beware of false teachers. Listen, we've got them all around today. False teachers, they're, they're around, they're, they're wolves all around us. Let me just throw a few things out there very quickly about false teachers. One, well, one of them is they'll mix humanistic humanism, man first, with the gospel. And they put it and they weave it together in such a way that if you, be, if you believe Christ, if you follow Christ, God's going to make you rich. It's a weird, noxious noxious mixture that's deadly that's not biblical there are wolves even now that will come in from among you whether it be through the television set whether it be through the radio whether it be uh just just friends that this this mixture of of using the gospel for your own gain and then there are there's this there's uh this false teaching of of a cheap kind of grace that you know what, you can do whatever you want to, it doesn't matter, uh, everything's going to be okay in the end, God's going to wash it all away, you're saved by grace. Uh, and so there's a almost, it cheapens the death of Christ on Calvary. Christ died for us, he took our stripes, uh, he took the nails to set us free from the bondage of sin. Paul wrote the Romans, how can you continue in sin that grace may abound? That same teaching was floating around there. There's nothing new under the sun. He says, God forbid. That's why Christ died. You're missing it. He didn't save you so you can continue in your sin, continue in your addiction, continue in your bondage and say, you know what? I'm okay. He saved you to liberate from that lifestyle of bondage to sin. And then there's a lot of blending of doctrines going on today uh, that leave out the centrality of Jesus Christ as the only way. There's, what a, there's a word that's, that's kind of floating around in the, in the last five, it's barely new, last 10 years called Chrislam. And they want to take the teachings of Islam and Christianity and mix it together and talk about Chrislam. And you know what? We all kind of worship the same God. You don't, we don't. Jesus Christ died, crucified, rose again the third day. That is the centrality of everything we believe, everything we hold to. Now, now, what's the warning for us? He says, beware, wolves will come in from among us. In order for us to be prepared, we have got to know the word of God. And I love to preach, and you're going to get it straight here, but listen, it's not enough. You've got to study it on your own. You've got to read it on your own. Uh, you've got to learn it on your own. Once a week's not enough. Get into the word of God. You know, cults today prey on Christians who are disenchanted in some way or another. 
Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, knocking on doors, many of those that they're drawn into those cults are right out of Christian churches. Paul says, watch out, beware, wolves will come in to deceive. And then he, then he warns of dangers among us. Look at verse number 30. Now he's going to get closer to home. We're moving from those from around us to those. He says, even from your own number. Look at those words. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. I tell you what, we, this, we were shaking this last week. I don't know about you, but I, I think it was Monday the report started coming over, over the news of the Boston Marathon. Can you, can you believe how sick things are today? Guys running a race, three people killed, 12 amputees, over 150 injured because bombs were set throughout the city of Boston. Time to go off while innocent runners are running a race, trying to finish the course. Now, the incredible thing to me is they, they found those guys. One's been, one's been killed and the other is in custody, severely wounded. But they've been, they, they've been in our country for 10 years in the Boston area, a decade He says, be careful, wolves will even come out from among us. And if we are not careful, there can be terrorists inside the church who will try to hijack the church spiritually. Are are you tracking with me here? Beware that they don't rise up even from within the church, even from among us. Turn to 3 John. 3 John, look at verse number 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, Diotrephes, close, who loves to be first will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing. He He was a part of that church that John is writing to, gossiping maliciously about us. Now, how do you know a wolf is among you? Listen to what they're saying. Now, if they're gossiping, don't listen. Rebuke them in the Lord. But if somebody in the church is gossiping and talking about everybody else, they are trying to attract a following after themselves. Uh, He says they are wolves among us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. Another sign of a wolf. Clicky. My little group. My little party. Guests not welcome here. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Now, here's a guy who has serious control issues. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. He said, this guy is not a brother. He's a wolf. Because he's gossiping, he loves to be first, he refuses to welcome the brother, and finally he says he is just plain evil. He's not a servant. He's wanting power and position. Now these guys, if they're allowed, if terrorists are allowed to run rampant in the church, John says, when I get there, we'll put them out, we'll deal with them. But if terrorists are allowed to remain in the church, they will split the church right down the middle. Now, I, I hear, I've heard many stories of churches that have split 
because people like Diotrephes comes in and gossips and wants to be first and loves a place of power. I thank God for his incredible grace that, is, that in the 29 years I've been here, there's never been a, a church split. And God's good. Uh, that's the grace and glory and goodness of God. But he says, watch out, watch out. And then the last danger he talks about, and this is really close to all of us. Look at verse number 31. Dangers from within us. So he says, so be on your guard, you people, you Ephesians. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. The biggest danger I have is not from out there somewhere. It's not even from among us in here. The biggest danger is myself. It's myself. I'm the one who messes things up. I'm the one who gets myself in trouble. It is within me. It is myself. And so I've warned you with tears. uh, Don't take God's spiritual blessings uh, and grace for granted. Remember the grace of God. And so I've warned you again and again and again. Now, he gives him three specific warnings. I'm going to give you these very quickly, and we're going to wrap it up here. Number one, he warns against shallowness. Shallowness. Look at verse number 32. Now I commit to you, God, and to the word of grace that can build you up and give you inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now he's warning against shallowness. He says, it's time, church, to grow up. You can't remain a baby all your life. It cannot always be about you. You've got to leave the, the elementary principles and move on to maturity. And maturity it says, my life is about serving others. Finding my gifts and talents and using them for God's glory. He says, grow up. Grow up in God's grace. Grow up in God's word. He says, you can't remain the way you are. And he challenges the Ephesians, grow up. Be built up. He says, be built up unto sanctification. Sanctification is a wonderful word. It's a big word for holiness. Separated from this world and separated unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Sanctification, very quickly, is twofold. Uh, It is a position. Uh, The moment I say, Jesus, come into my heart and into my life, I am sanctified uh, by the blood of the Lamb of God. Isn't that great to know? That's why... That's why Paul writes to those rascals in Corinth and he calls them saints, to the saints of God in Corinth. And they had some problems. But I'm also sanctified progressively as I continue to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says we're sanctified in two ways, by the washing of the word of God, excuse me, by the blood of the lamb and by the washing of the water of the word of God. So the more I get the word of God into my spirit, the more I am conformed into his image. The more time I spend in his presence, the more time I spend in prayer, the more he works in my heart, the more he renews my mind, and I become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so Paul tells the Ephesians, beware of that danger within, beware of that shallowness of remaining at one level, but let's go on and grow in Jesus Christ. Wow. He warns them against covetousness. Look at verses 33 and 34. I have not coveted anyone's silver, gold, or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. What is covetousness? Covetousness is that consuming, controlling desire for what someone else has. 
Someone else has it. I want it. I think about it. I desire it. That's covetousness. Ephesians 5, 5 says covetousness is idolatry. Beware of covetousness. Listen, don't compare yourself with anybody else. Paul says all such comparisons are evil. Give thanks for what you got. Don't compare yourself to someone else's salary. Don't compare your house to someone else's house. Don't compare your car to someone else's car. Don't compare your talents to someone else's talents. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. God has blessed you and gifted you, and you give thanks in that. Covetousness is that root of discontentment, and that gets into our spirit, and it defiles us, and so beware. Look at what God's call and plan for your life is. And number three, he warns against the danger of selfishness. And in verse 35, and everything I did, I showed you the kind of hard work which we must help the weak. Remember in the words of the Lord Jesus himself when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, as you grow in Christ Jesus, you will become a giver. Isn't that exciting? The more I'm built up in Christ, the more I know Jesus, the more I follow his teachings, his principles for life, I automatically become a giver. I automatically want to help the weak. Uh, I automatically want to reach out and serve others. Uh, I become very, very generous with my time and my talents and my resources. I want to become a giver. And he says, don't you know the words of Jesus? It's more blessed to give than to receive. If you want to be blessed in your life, be a giver. I'm not making this stuff up. I just read it to you. It's more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, your blessing doesn't come by storing up your stuff, storing up your bank account, storing up your savings account, storing up your stocks and bonds. Uh, The blessing comes when you learn by God's grace to give that away. Because it's more blessed to give than to Receive blessings, blessings, God's blessings. So, and, and he's not just talking about finances. I give love away. I give service away. I give forgiveness freely because God's freely forgiven me. And so I forgive those who wrong me. I, I give away. And so Paul's this incredible example of a leader. He was devoted to a great person. He was moved by a great purpose. And he warned the church of great peril. Paul gets them together after he preaches this sermon and he kneels down. The Bible says he kneels down with them. Gets these elders around. He had started out with 12. I don't know how many, how many he's got now there at Ephesus, at Miletus. The Bible says they, they embrace each other. He begins to cry and weep because he knows he's probably never going to see these guys again. If we study history and the word of God, right, this was the last time he would ever see them. The incredible thing is that this is the last time you'd ever see him in this life. He would see him again. He'd see every one of them again. And you know, the great thing is if you're in Christ Jesus, we will see each other again in glory in heaven. Do not miss next Sunday, book of Revelation. We're going to talk and give you a glimpse into the future. Invite everybody you can to come. The Holy Spirit's going to be so strong. I'm praying about this message. I've been praying about it 
God's going to move next Sunday morning. We're going to wrap up the story with Revelation. Do not miss next Sunday. Thanks for listening. For more, check out faithishere.org.